The following talk was given by Denia Chike Levester at Zen Mountain Monastery. Chike is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. We offer all of our talks free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thanks for listening. Greetings, Sangha. My name is Chike. I'm a lay senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. Um, I'd like to begin with a poem um, that's resonated um, in me. This is from uh, a collection called The First Free Women, original poems inspired by the early Buddhist nuns. These are poetic translations that um, bring out our ancient wise women um, bring, bring their practice to life. They, they didn't necessarily know all the full names of the women, um, so, but they were able to find their words in their teaching. So this is one um, by, we think, Mitta, called Friend. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend when the whole world is your friend fear will find no place to call home and when you make the mind your friend you'll know what trust really means listen i have followed this path of friendship to its end And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. It's meaningful to me to read the poetic words of some of our Buddhist women ancestors. Um, I, indeed, left home full of trust uh, in my journey, uh, and I somehow found myself here. I trusted then, and now still, Uh, that I had the capacity to discover for myself what is true. Aware, too, that I had privileges that made it possible for me to practice in a place like this. Uh, the ability to, over time, learn how I might best take truth with me into my life off the cushion, which has always seemed to me, um, as a lay student, to be the point of the whole endeavor. In this particular lifetime, I happen to inhabit a skin bag, as my first teacher, Daito Roshi, would say. I happen to inhabit a skin bag that is sort of cafe con leche colored in a body society calls one type of woman. Um, as such, my experiences in the world are the same as those who inhabit all kinds of other bodies, and also, they're different. I've experienced my share of senseless suffering that comes from domination, power, and embodied colonialism. More suffering than some, and most certainly much less than many of my brothers and sisters. Recently, the BIOPOC group had a meeting a second meeting, actually, with Dr. Eduardo Duran, 
who is a Native American psychologist, author, and teacher who shared with us some of his understanding around how we might heal our soul wounds. His vision, I found, was rich um, with wisdom uh, from Native peoples, some of which has resonated with me already deeply, still working on me. It's opening my mind to different, broader ways of seeing and experiencing being alive, of experiencing practice. Ultimately, I think it all comes down to love, but I'd like to share with you a little of how my understanding, um, informed by some of his wisdom, is supporting my practice. So let me start by saying, generally, I'm pretty good with words, but this is difficult to explain, so I'm going to try. Please bear with me. Got lots of words here. Um, but these are things that resonated with me and based on my lived experience. So um, some of the things he said um, that have landed in me, um, this is a quote, I language is problematic. I language separates me from myself because there is no I. He also said, he spoke of the intuition of the living earth, the intuition of the living earth, our mother, us, one and the same. The earth knows stuff. Are we paying attention? He said, human suffering is part of what makes consciousness possible. Suffering is the compost of enlightenment. I love that. Suffering is the compost of enlightenment. It's suffering that brought me to this practice. My pain, my fear. He spoke of our ancestors, too, in this context. I want to heal my pain. I want to heal all people's pain. I want to heal intergenerational trauma. And I'm learning how in our training, in our practice, this Dharma wheel, it turns in both directions, right? So domination cannot exist in any social situation where love ethic prevails. When love is present, the desire to dominate and exercise power cannot rule the day. That is from Bell Hooks uh, in All About Love. She says, there is no fear in love, but we do fear, and fear keeps us from trusting in love. Cultures of domination rely on the cultivation of fear as a way to ensure obedience. In our society, we make much of love but we say very little about fear, while many of us suffer from our fears and are afraid. As a culture, we seem obsessed with notions of safety, but we don't question why we live in states of anxiety and dread so often. Fear is the primary force upholding structures of domination. It promotes the desire for separation, the desire not to be known. And... If you were raised here, where we're taught that um, safety lies in sameness, then difference of any kind 
may appear as a threat. When we choose to love, we choose to move against fear, against alienation, against separation. The choice to love is a choice to connect, to find ourselves in the other. I like to think this might be what um, Hooks means by an ethic of love. Bell Hooks says, many of us are imprisoned by fear. We can move toward a love ethic by the process of conversion. Quoting one of my living heroes, philosopher Dr. Cornell West, who says, a politics of conversion can restore our sense of hope. One of the results of practice and Zen training is that we can learn to make choices, convert conditioned reactions, and change them in ways that reaffirm our interconnectedness rather than keeping us afraid and separate. She says, if all public policy was created in the spirit of love, we would not have to worry about unemployment, homelessness, schools failing to reach children, or addiction. Embracing a love ethic means we utilize what she calls the six dimensions of love, which are care, commitment, trust, responsibility, respect, and knowledge. I think this is what we're doing in practice, cultivating awareness. And our training, which is based in the precepts, shows us how that being aware enables us to critically examine our actions and their motivations, the actions and the motivations behind our actions, to see what's happening here. So I can determine what's needed, give care, be responsible, show respect, indicate a willingness to learn, a love ethic. I ask myself this question all the time. So why do I practice? Why do you practice? My knees hurt, my hips hurt. Why do I do this again? Well, my answer today <clears throat> is because I don't yet know what or who I truly am and because of my longing and my suffering. I just aspire to know. And I haven't tried on anything that gets me as close to truth as this practice has. Master Dogen wrote that Zazen meditation does not lead to enlightenment. Practice is realization, and realization is practice. No bridge is necessary. Wholehearted practice. We are whole, each of us, no matter the package. Dogen says, this is wisdom seeking wisdom, or wholeness seeking wholeness. When we get off the cushion, though, what is it we embody then? Society's conditioning is problematic for many of us. Certainly it has been for me. I was taught to be a rugged individual. Stand on my own two feet. Don't depend on anyone. Be autonomous self-sufficient, all alone, by myself, solo, separate. And I've been conditioned, too, toward endless acquisition. Get more, and then you'll be happy. 
we're given the message that what we have is not enough, and perhaps to some of us, depending on the package or our family of origin, the message that what we are is not enough. I've chased after this idea of acquisition, and I've come to understand that it doesn't work that way. Um, that happiness is not a goal. It's not a thing to be acquired. Ten-yard line, touchdown! Mm-mm, doesn't work that way. Speaking for myself, endless acquisition, avarice, it just keeps my mind spinning. En- envy, greed, comparison, judgment. The mind of spiritual aspiration, too. Am I there yet? Have I reached a goal? Wait, who can I find to verify for me that I'm going to get? So I think that individualism and acquisition in these sense create suffering because they deny the interdependence of life. We're taught to value them, but they may also be foundational to those who pursue aggressive action against those deemed as other. Ableism, racism, sexism, homophobia, discrimination against the natural world. They promote a belief in eternal separations with a devastating effect on our world and ourselves. This discriminative thinking leaves no space to experience intimacy. Dogen talked about intimacy as close and inseparable. Dogen said, says, embraces the ancestors. It embraces the self, you. It embraces action. It generates merit. I think this is why we're encouraged by the Dharma and our teachers to make an intimate study of the self. All-inclusiveness, wholeness, inseparable oneness, Intimacy is non-dual, original wholeness, not one, not two. Take the backward step. Turn the light inward. To study the mind means to study various aspects of mind, such as emotions, intellect, consciousness. I want to talk about two aspects of studying our mind that have been helpful Um, some ways that I have found this to be challenging. Um, I'll start with love. I'm going to talk about love and compassion. I'll start with love. So I'm reading this book now um, by Brene Brown. I'm a fan. Called Atlas of the Heart. And she writes in detail about what she calls emotional granularity. um, The wide range of emotions we have. Um, and she, she did, she's, all, she's very database. She did these surveys, and she asked, I think, 60,000 people or something, um, this question. List the emotions you're able to identify while you're feeling them. List the emotions you're able to identify you're having while you're feeling them. All those people, it boiled down to three. Happy, sad, and pissed off. She talks about the importance of language as well and how the words we use are really um, central to how we experience ourselves. Um, I encourage you to read the book if that's of interest to you. I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, We want connection. Um, You know, we're social beings. And so in Atlas of the Heart, 
she talks about the concept of near enemy. She says that the near enemy creates disconnection, disruption, that it's like a bid for connection that goes nowhere. And so I think about this in myself. I mean, you know, we're social beings. I'm a social being. What is it when I'm trying to connect with somebody else? And like, it works. Why? When I'm connecting, trying to connect with somebody else and it doesn't work. Why? What's happening there? So I think this concept is a concept we already know in Zen training, but we don't speak very directly about it. So it's when a thing that masquerades as the virtue that we're seeking to be or embody, um, it masquerades as this thing, but it actually unravels everything between people. Jack Cornfield said, the near enemy may seem like the quality we are looking for and believe are important or mistaken for them, but they're different and often undermine our practice. The near enemy, this is still Cornfield, the near enemies depict how spirituality can be misunderstood or misused to separate us from one another and from our birthright. I like that. Know thyself. Near enemies are emotions that are mistaken for positive virtues, such as loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, because they so closely resemble them on the surface. Buddhism explains that virtuous, positive, meaning positive, constructive, wholesome, emotions lead to happiness in the long term, while non-virtuous, negative, destructive, unwholesome, emotions lead to suffering. This concept of near enemies means that although something may appear virtuous in the moment, it may actually be subtly deceiving us and causing us more problems over the long term. And so this quote by Kornfeld I love, the near enemies depict how spirituality can be misunderstood or misused to separate us from life. How? How? So, for example, and this is pretty close to my lived experience as a child in particular, a needy, possessive, codependent relationship may look and feel like love, but actually be full of fear and non-acceptance. And likewise, easygoing, accepting attitudes may appear a lot like equanimity when, in fact, it might be more based on resignation and indifference. Due to masquerading as positive emotions, these near enemies are sneakier and harder to spot than their more obvious far enemies or opposites like cruelty and envy. Thankfully, the way to deal with near enemies is pretty straightforward. We're training. We practice. It starts with becoming aware of them. Know thyself. And once we are aware, it becomes harder to be deceived. Not being deceived, not being deceived by them is one thing. Getting out of their grips, however, is another, and that's why I practice. Love's near enemy, then, is attachment or clinging. Its far enemy would be hate. I will love because I need something. Or I will love on the condition that you love me back. Or I will love only if you'll change and be the way I want or what I want. Attachment, clinging, fear. They're the near enemies of real love. Real love allows, honors, 
appreciates. Attachment grasps, demands, needs, and aims to possess. Love really, love is really unselfishly wishing others to be happy, to be delighted in their presence, to offer our affection and smiles and hugs and help freely without wanting anything in return. The unbiased love that's part of Mahayana Buddhism is a form of love that can be practiced alone, with others, a state in which we can share equally with everyone, including partners and family, friends, strangers, and even enemies, those we've been conditioned to other, simply wanting others to be happy. The near enemies depict how spirituality can be misunderstood or misused to separate us from life. Do we practice this ethic of love, this kind of love in our lives? Or are we seeking the attachment kind? Do we know? When is this most difficult for you? Are you asking yourself? bringing it in to your training. In Zen, we understand attachment as delusion. We understand it as a mistaken belief that another person can be the cause of our inner happiness. We believe, I'm going to repeat it, because it's just something I've spent so much time repeating to myself. Attachment is a delusion. It's a mistaken belief that another person can be the cause of our inner happiness. By seeing love in terms of our needs being met, we split the world and ourselves into different compartments, the things we love or that give us love, the neutral, the unlovable. Who is it, again, that's unlovable? With this sort of divided view, it's hard to feel safe and loved without clinging to where you think the love comes from, right? And it's hard to let go without feeling scared and fearful of what happens when that goes away. It's a process, our training. It's a process. Trust the process. Loving kindness isn't based on personal needs being met. It also, therefore, can't be based on having ownership or possession or power or control over other beings. It's all here in our practice. The near enemy of compassion, one near enemy of compassion is pity. Um, It's like this. You poor thing. I'm so sorry for you sounds like you ever have interactions like that like people the words the words sounded right but like you walked away and you were like um I don't know why that didn't land didn't feel um I can't you know I've had that experience I'm so sorry for you Brown puts it this way and I just I love the way she speaks sometimes she says this, this pity um, is like this. I feel sorry for you. 
I feel sorry for you from like over here where shit like that doesn't happen. You know, it's far away versus I feel you versus expressing close identification with another flawed and complex human being. Pity leaves people feeling empty, not seen, misunderstood. It's saying, oh, that poor person, I feel sorry for people like that, which, instead of feeling their suffering, allows you to objectify it and put it at a distance so you don't have to feel so bad and can get on with your day. Have you ever done this? I looked up pitying, and I found this description, um, feeling or showing sorrow for someone's misfortunes often with an implication of disdain or mild contempt. I never really looked it up before, but like that, that's it. That's what I feel when people like say those platitude kinds of things and, and that the words sound right and I can't put my finger on why. Another near enemy of, of compassion is despair or overwhelm. Um, it's when the whole compassion thing goes overboard. Um, it's empathy overload, compassion fatigue, you know, all the other names for when we take on too much um, of others suffering to the point of anguish of our own, you know. These, these three qualities, pity, disdain, overwhelm, despair, overwhelm, are all, all near enemies of compassion because they masquerade well as the real thing while in actuality they get in the way. So, for instance, by taking on the suffering of others, you may feel accepted and feel as if you're doing them a favor. But you also may be drowning in unnecessary worry and strain and showing little compassion toward yourself. We are included. Likewise, by not being honest with a friend about how you feel, you think... They may, not, they may continue to like you. If you don't tell them the truth, they may continue to like you and be your buddy, right? But by being honest, you may have to risk the friendship and them not liking you or maybe just being a little grumpy for a while. In this way, what's being offered is not actually compassion. It's more concerned with the person's own feeling than attending to the person's actual needs. Compassion it's not about trying to make other people feel better. It's also not about making sure people like you or appearing like a good person or even trying to get rid of pain and discomfort. Compassion comes from the Latin root calm, meaning with, and pati, meaning to suffer. Literally, to be with suffering to be with suffering. Dr. Duran said, our suffering has been entrusted to us. Don't waste your suffering. Our suffering has been entrusted to us. Don't waste it. Suffering is part of what makes consciousness possible. As opposed to trying to deny or completely eliminate suffering, compassion is the ability to accept the very real and often painful part it plays in life and to act accordingly with an open heart. When we do this, 
we become more willing to respond to our own and another's pain instead of succumbing to pity, enabling, or despair. Dr. Duran also said, this I language is problematic. I language separates me from myself because there isn't an I. So what are we protecting with these near enemies? A self? The illusory idea of a person? Is that some sort of fixed thing? Who then is being protected? Do we know why we are protecting this self? Habit? Conditioned upbringing? Fear? Okay, so I'm trying to parse this out, and I'm finding words a little bit different, difficult, so bear with me. So persons exist as persons, but not a self, an I. I'm not my body, and I'm not my mind. I have them. So quick thought experiment. So think about somebody's body that you'd like to have. Just identifying that, just identifying that may make you realize that you have a body, but not that we are one. Think about a mind that you might like to have, even if just for a little while. If you can form that desire, then maybe you've already identified for yourself that you're not your mind either, but rather that you have one. So what are we? I'm not sure yet. But so far, conscious, embedded in the world, relational, interdependent, embodied causally, conditioned in an existence within which things exist, in interaction with objects or persons in social contexts. We need to connect with ourselves first. And then the depth of the connection with ourselves will profoundly impact the depth of our capacity and ability to connect with other people. If we're hoping to create connection, have the difficult conversations, support, love, and save all beings, like we chant each and every day. What we're called on to do, I think, in the interest of meaningful connection is not to walk in other people's shoes. I don't don't think we can do that. Um, But rather to believe people when they tell us what their experiences are like when they walk in their shoes. To believe them. We may not know what someone's experiencing, but we can be a learner. We can be curious. We can ask people. We can embody a love ethic. We can understand what motivations underlie our near enemies. And we can try, one moment at a time, not to give in to fear. We will be held. Reality will hold us. You're not alone. We're Sangha. We can be a friend with the world, with our own mind. Through practice, 
you slowly but surely give up the struggle of wishing and wanting for things to be different. We become confident just to be with all of what life has to offer, its difficulties, the suffering, the challenges, its joyful awesomeness. Conscious life is a miracle, I think. And each one of us, however long or short our lives, embodies that miracle. Can we embody a love ethic and make the whole world our friend? Again, the wise words of ancestor Mita. Full of trust, you left home and soon learn to walk the path, making yourself friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will, not, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen. I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.